Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast, and um, I'm with a really good friend of mine today, uh, Rob Schwartz, who's independent counselor for uh, Premier College Guidance, um, Southern California, but I know you work with kids all over the place, Rob, and I know over the years we've talked about many things, education, sports, you know, we talked about the Lakers, the Dodgers, you know, the Kings, we won't talk about that. Um, but we talk about many different things in life. And, and I think one of the things that I want to go to in this conversation with you is, is, you know, college rankings, return on investment, some of the research we're seeing, and then maybe even like the post-COVID effect on kind of colleges. But you wrote recently um, a blog that was on LinkedIn that I saw on a little bit of your distaste for college rankings. Can, can you help me understand like why and how they limit our thinking when it comes to colleges? Yeah. And first and foremost, uh, I've listened to many of your, uh, your digital education podcasts. I've clearly worked with you for many, many years now. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Um, one of my best friends in this industry and frankly, one of my best friends, period. So it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Um, yeah, I, I have, I've had a rather consistent rather negative take on the world of college ranking systems, and I'm not afraid to, to boast that opinion. And it's not as if the rankings are completely without merit. And I'll actually say the most recent rankings by uh, groups like US News and World Report are getting a little bit better. But the bottom line is this, you can't use ranking systems for an individual. That is the bottom line. What I like, what I need, what I feel will make me comfortable in my environment has absolutely nothing to do with the statistical measurement of a school. One of the easiest ways I convey this to my families is to look at, I believe it was last year's US News ranking that showed tied at number 28 were three schools. The University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, Tufts University, and Wake Forest University. Now, if you take the time to look at those three schools, remember, they're tied for number 28 in the ranking. So they're identically good, theoretically speaking, according to the ranking guides. But then you look at those three schools and you go, wait a minute, I got a school with 30,000 undergraduate students and probably 10,000 graduate students. The weather is different. The culture is different huge sports culture, division one, rah-rah, I like to call it UCLA with lousy weather. Then you've got um, Tufts, which is the division three school outside of Boston, very liberal arts field with about 9,000 undergraduate students, totally different academic environment. Then you've got Wake Forest, which is the smallest of all of them, but has that division one look and feel and is in a power five conference like Ann Arbor, but you're never ever gonna have a large class at Wake Forest, other than they're all hard to get into and they all have a high academic standard. That's where the beginning, the middle and the end all come together. So for a student who would thrive at Michigan, they're probably not gonna thrive at the other two schools. So you tell me, they're tied in the rankings, but it's impossible to actually use that data to pick which one is best for you, the individual student. And that is my complaint. So, so then in, in that blog, you, you kind of hit on the, the Georgetown's new research on, uh, it's, I guess it's Georgetown's Center for Education in the Workforce. And, 
you know, this kind of perspective now on how they try to rank like return on investment or ROI. So why the shift to maybe looking at ROI as a way to rank colleges, number one, and then like what's something like really interesting that you discovered through looking at those rankings in that research? So I consider an ROI study to be just another more data-driven angle of another list. Now, is there merit in looking at ROI? I think there's some. But again, from an individual college search and selection purpose, it's a really small value. So what I can do is look at the data and I can say, well, what does it actually tell us about college performance in the near term and college performance in the long term? And frankly, that's where the fun really happens. So if you look at this study that Georgetown put together, and you use their data system and you essentially ask it to give you the most successful, the best ROI schools 10 years after graduation. And you look at that list and then you say, now show me what the best ROI schools are in the nation after 40 years post-graduation. You will look at two completely different lists. That's the first thing. So the first group, almost without exception, are associate's degree programs and certificate programs, mainly in nursing. So you're not paying a lot of money and you're getting a big bang for your buck right out the gate. That's what that data tells us. On the 40-year side, almost every one of the schools is a BA, BS degree from mainly pretty well-known schools. But if you look at the pattern of behavior, you have these super well-known, super hard to get into schools, many of them trickle into the top 20. You have a lot of schools with a specific emphasis in marine science, not marine biology, marine science. And then you have the STEM program. So engineering, computer science in particular. Those programs tend to pay out the best in the long term. So that was the first thing I discovered. The second thing I discovered was the notion that liberal arts colleges and private universities tend to defeat their polar opposites, if you will. The public universities don't do as well ROI-wise, even though their sticker prices are much lower, generally because it costs longer in terms of your time there. I also would like to think that because you have such an incredible amount of diversity in your population, and you have an enormous diversity in terms of the majors you can select from, you end up getting kind of a mishmash of everything where private schools tend to be a little bit more focused on what's gonna get you to the job. Um, because remember, they're judged based on how well their students perform post-graduation. They also tend to be more focused on the bottom line. Um, I don't know why that is, Eric, maybe you know, but bottom line meaning financial performance tends to be a big deal at private universities. And in terms of getting the students through that system, the data is overwhelmingly so that says private schools are averaging about 4.2 to 4.3 years for graduation, but a public university in the U.S. is almost a year more than that, which can add up to a significant difference in terms of the ROI. So, it, and I think there's, there's some interesting, you know, conversations and questions in that, you know, why private schools maybe outperform public schools when public schools or public state universities in particular have such a, um, 
you know, small sticker price comparison um, to those private schools. But, but one of the questions I wonder, and you brought it up, you brought it up about liberal arts, right? So it seems to me, based on what you wrote and based on a little bit of the research, like if, if you want the biggest return on investment, pick a, pick a STEM major, likely in health sciences, maybe pharmaceuticals or engineering of some sort, or go to a liberal arts college and see where it takes you. Um, I would agree with that, Eric. Um, I would 100% agree with that. If and and this is this is maybe where the conversation gets really interesting. Is if you go back 20 years, how many of your students would say, you know, I don't care what I do, Mr. Ellison. What I care about is how much money I make when I get out of college. 20 years ago, I never had that conversation with anyone. Now, that's 70% of the conversations I have. My guess is it has a lot to do with students who witnessed their parents go through the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010 or 11 and the long-term effects of what we've seen there. They don't want to suffer like their parents did. They don't want to go through losing a home or having to double or triple down on a home or have this just overwhelming feeling of the sky could be falling if it isn't already. And a lot of students are just hyper-focused on what am I going to make and how fast am I going to make it? And so when we look at that, it's pretty obvious, hey, if, if it's all about how much money you're going to make, you better find a profession that you know pays money. It has a lot less to do with where you get your degree and has a lot more to do with what are you going to study that's going to get you into a field that pays well. Yeah, yeah I mean, it is really interesting. And you bring up a great point about like, um, I think it's it's a little bit of a shift, right? You know, is is I think about like, I talked to my grandfather a lot, who was an incredibly talented and wise man, but he graduated high school um, in the middle of the depression, right? And so it was about providing for. And, and I have seen a little bit of that mentality, you know, kind of come back a little bit in the conversations of, you know, providing for. And I think one of the challenges that you and I get is how expensive our communities where we live and the majority of the kids that we work with have become. And so kids, when they say about, hey, if I'm going to live in my community, in my home, I need to provide for at a certain level um, an expectation. And so, so I do see, like you said, you know, a lot of kids choosing um, dentistry or pharmaceuticals or even nursing over becoming a doctor when they have the opportunity to become a doctor, but nursing over that because of the way it provides for and the less cost, you know, at the, at the, uh, you know, for the education process. So, I mean, in that, and even as we make the adjustments as professionals and switch, like if you were going to have this conversation, you know, and I know you have these conversations with families all the time, but if you were to have this conversation with my son or my daughter or, you know, because we're such good friends, what would you say to them as they kind of think about like the next steps and, and what to look for and what to make sure that like, hey, don't miss digging deep in these areas? I'm pretty old school in my thinking, Eric, and that old school thinking is, I don't really care what you do. If you do it really well, someone is going to pay you a lot of money for it. So be an expert in whatever it is you do. Love what you do. Be the best darn whatever it is you can be, and someone will pay you money to do it. I don't think that philosophy has changed one iota in as long as either one of us has been on this planet and alive. So... That's where I would start. 
The second thing I would talk about in terms of specifically dialing into colleges is forget the brand. Where are you going to be a happy human being? Where are you going to thrive as an intellectual? Where are you going to thrive as a social person? Where are you going to thrive in the right religious environment? Find the place where you will excel because that is where you unleash your own power. Um, and I tell this story all the time. I, I went to UCLA as an undergraduate student, which is, according to US News and World Report, the number one public rated university in the United States, four years running. Go Bruins. But here's the bottom line. So we're the number one public rated university, and that's wonderful. And here's the thing. When I was an undergraduate student there, I was the type of kid who wanted to raise my hand in class. Guess what didn't happen for three years? I wasn't raising my hand in anyone's classes because all of my classes were between 75 and 700 students. That's the reality of a large public research university. Another great one that I get is the notion that because it's called a research university, there's this belief that most of the undergraduates are doing the research. <laughs> no, you're not. The graduate students and the professors are. So you've got to do your homework. You've got to dig a little deeper than what's on the surface and really get beyond the brand and the name on the outside of the institution or the football or basketball program. That's essentially the loss leader for the school and really find out, is this the place that you want to call home for the next four or five years of your life? And if you find that right place, you'll find not only you get a better experience and a better education, but you'll actually improve your chances of getting into that school. Uh, that's, that's incredible because it is so funny. Like, you know, it's where's, where's the opportunity, you know, for you to, to, to be who you are. Right. And, and even though I sat in the back row, I was a little bit like you is like, you know, I wanted to raise my hand and ask those questions. And, and I happened to go to a college that you could not hide. Right. You, you know what? Like, I remember the first class I skipped, I got a call on my phone and my professor saying, hey, we're in class. You're not here. I expect you to be here in 15 minutes. It's like, oh, OK. <laughs> but, you know, you know, and, and that was perfect for me because I would have easily slip through the cracks at some of those larger universities. Um, one of the things that I'm wondering about, you know, in this COVID situation, you talk about a place like UCLA with the big, massive classrooms and, you know, you, you, we talk about, you know, smaller schools, um, you know, kind of the virtual and the online and all of these types of things. I, I don't, I, I mean, I got a question for you on like what, what might happen from a marketplace perspective, but what should students be prepared to be able to do you know, at, at any college that they go to in regards to probably how things will look different next year after all this is over? Well, this is clearly speculation. And I, I can't, I don't have a, a crystal ball to be able to tell you exactly what the world is going to look like. But if I had to guess, colleges are going to do everything in their power in fall of 21 to make it look like fall of 19. I believe in my heart, if they don't, colleges are going to go away and they're going to go away fast because families aren't going to see the financial ROI to invest the same money they would living on campus, eating on campus, commiserating with students, going to football games, all that amazing opportunity that comes with being on campus, but being in a virtual environment. I don't see the value in it. 
Um, I know most students don't see the value in it. And you can't really blame the universities for charging what they charge. Their professors are working just as hard, if not harder than they did before the pandemic. Uh, I have a professor who's my wife who goes through this every single day working in a virtual environment. And I assure you, she is working more hours, not less as an instructor. But then you couple all of that with all of the lost revenue for athletics, all of the lost revenue in rent to dorms and similar facilities, all the food cost losses, all the research losses. And you start to see that even fairly well-to-do schools are not looking real good on paper. I think it's somewhere around 60% of the United States' four-year schools are now running in the red. That number will go up, not down. So if I'm, if I'm a betting man, I'm betting that schools resume normalcy in fall of 2021 to every extent possible, or they may not be around much longer. Uh, and it's very possible that a lot of them could close down just because, you know, we're seeing some of the demographic shifts. And, and one question I, I want for you, because it's been I've been pondering this a lot. I live in Silicon Valley, you know, and, and, and my kids, you know, and the kids in, in our community are, you know, there's some that are highly accomplished. And, you know, you look at like Google and Microsoft and they've talked about, you know, now almost creating these these new pipeline programs um, for computer scientists and computer engineers and software. So it's even like bypassing the college route. Um, how important even is maybe college to, to some of these, you know, you might say good jobs that kids can have in the future? That's a great question. That's a gold star question, my friend. Um, here's the thing. And we mentioned liberal arts colleges before, and I think maybe it, this is the place to maybe mention why they're doing so well for their students in terms of the ROI. Students who attend liberal arts colleges tend to read better, they tend to think better, and they tend to write better. And that magic combination makes for very flexible people who can work in many different environments and do pretty much whatever they do well with the notion that they can take experiences from a, a huge spectrum of what they've seen, whether it be sociology or anthropology or history or political science or English or any of the STEM fields, because they've been exposed to all of them, and then tie one specific area of focus in and become really good at it. And again, with the notion that they read well, they write well, and they think well, they can accomplish just about anything. I'm a huge fan of the liberal arts college. I do a lot of writing on liberal arts colleges. Um, I think that would be lost in what you're describing. Could Google, for instance, route their own student population to be great at STEM fields, be great at computer science? Yeah, you could plug and play all day long and make someone good at a widget. Yes, I could become the best computer programmer ever, but have no context other than I can write the code. I wouldn't understand anything beyond the code, but I'd be great at producing code. And if that's the job I want and it pays enough, sure, why not? It's like trade school plus. But from my perspective, I think the liberal arts schools are the best way to go because it gets us, in, and we certainly need it in this country now, we need people who are broad thinkers, who can see beyond the BS, who can read between the lines. And I don't think most people who don't have that type of education have that ability right now, which is why part of the problem we have as a nation exists.
Uh, that's a whole unique com- conversation to even be had, you know, especially as we enter into election season and, you know, we look at our leadership amidst, you know, the shutdown and kind of, you know, the, the, the conversations that we're having o- overall. I, I think one of the questions and you hit on it with the RO, uh, you hit on it with the liberal arts stuff, but then like there, there is this, you know, kind of conversation or question of purpose of education, whether it be, you know, uh, you know, K to 12 education, whether it be higher education. When, when we talk about rankings and when we talk about ROI, we do miss a huge connection to character, growth, human development. Like, like, and, and you mentioned a lot of that, you know, in an earlier comment about where you're going to go, where you're going to thrive. But, but help me understand a little bit more. If I'm a parent, like, and I want my kid to become a great human being, like, what, what should I be looking for in these next steps for him as I think about, you know, college? Another gold star question. I mean, that's really where we, we draw kind of a dividing line. What kind of a human being are you interested in cultivating? Are you interested in cultivating one who's a thinker? Are you interested in cultivating one who can do a task and make money? And some families want one and some families want the other. And the beauty of the American college system is with 1,654 year schools currently to choose from, you can have pretty much anything you want. There is no limit. You've got great weather, you've got cold weather, you've got hot weather, you've got small intimate classes, you've got these mega classes where you'll never be asked a question ever. And maybe that's a better place for you. Maybe you're a second language learner and you're the type of person who's great when you can get a couple of people together and study, but you don't ever want to be put on the spot in a class. Great. We've got that for you. We've got ones that are specifically focused in liberal arts. We've got those that are focused specifically in STEM. We've got those that are specifically focused in uh, social science or uh, a liberal arts field, or we've got, you know, uh, College of the Ozarks, which is going to put you to work to pay for your tuition, or we've got Juilliard, which, well, if you want to go into the arts field of some sort, probably an amazing place for you to go. There's no limit to the imagination of the American collegiate system, which is why for decades it has pulled the rest of the world here. Is that going to change? In the near term, it already has. Um, Hopefully that's not a long-term problem. And I have a feeling if administration changes in this election, much of that will return to what it was in 2018 and 2019, where there was a thriving international culture. Um, The Associate Dean of Admission at USC, Kirk Brennan, another good friend of mine, uh, I remember hearing in a presentation, he says, in the original Latin, college means come together. That was the original purpose of college is to bring different people, different perspectives, different backgrounds, different thoughts together to solve the world's problems. I don't know where we got off track, but we have gotten off track. And I think it's important for us to get back to that concept of using colleges to solve the world's problems. And if we do that, our system is as good as any in the world and always has, frankly, at tackling these big global issues and giving these young people the opportunity to work to making the world a better place. I'm a huge fan of that and I hope we don't lose that. But again, not everyone is looking for that. Not everyone is looking for the heal the world perspective. Not everyone is interested in the welfare of everyone else. They're interested in the welfare of themselves and that's 
sadly part of our American culture now too. But in terms of a college culture, we can satisfy anything you need. The better question, Eric, from my perspective is, do you know what you want and do you know why you want it? My students know the answers to those questions, which is why they make the best college selections possible and improve their chances of getting in. For students who really are just following the herd, I wish you the best of luck because even if you are successful, you might not actually be as successful as you think. In this country, the dropout rate is so high from year one to year two, it's somewhere around 28, 29%. What does that tell you about the effectiveness of students who are in 12th grade who are making these college selections that basically three in 10 aren't making it to year two? That's a bigger problem that I think we all need to address. Well, and that's, I think, you know, and that's, I know that's not part of our conversation, but I think that's one of the biggest things. If you remove non-completers from, you know, from the statistics on, you know, kind of the, everybody talks about the college loan crisis. If you remove non-completers from the, the, the college loan, like who owes, it's not a crisis. The crisis is the non-completers. And, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, the predatory nature of for-profit schools, but I know that's not part of our conversation. The, the last question I wanted to ask you, Rob, because you and I have talked about this a lot. You've shared a little bit of your story. My story is very much of this, like, uh, you know, kind of figure it out as you go sort of story too. But like, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm in high school or maybe I'm just starting college. I've had a lot of these conversations with my nephew who was a freshman last year and then has transferred now into his sophomore year. And now he's in a place where he's thriving. Um, what if I really don't know what I want to do or what, what I'm good at, or, you know, I like, you know, for me, I knew I was, I knew I didn't want to go to work after high school and I wanted to keep playing baseball. So I was going to look for college jobs. It's a little bit, my nephew, he knows he's good at basketball and he wants to keep playing as long as he can. And he knows he needs to get a degree and wants to get a degree, you know, and like, what would be your encouragements? Because you did mention your students, they, they ask those questions and they're answering them. Like, and how do I figure that out? Or how do I ask some of those deeper questions now so that I can, you know, avoid some of the pitfalls down the road? I was that pitfall, Eric. I didn't figure out what I wanted to do until I was in my 30s. And I look back at all of that other wasted time and I think to myself, I could have avoided that had I asked the interesting questions. Who am I? What do I care about? What am I interested? Why am I interested in it? Did I ever get my hands dirty and try it? These are all the things I would tell students in the here and the now, especially in high school. Get your hands dirty. Ask the interesting question. Try anything. The anecdote is imagine if you're standing in the center on top of your dining room table. And the assignment is to fall off the table. So if you take a couple of steps forward, you'd fall off the table. If you take a couple of steps back, you'd fall off the table. A couple of steps to the left or the right, you'd, yeah, you'd fall off the table. How can you fail this exercise? Just stand where you are. For students who just keep their blinders on and just say, I'm busy at school, I'm busy with my extracurricular activity, or I'm busy playing basketball or whatever it is, and I just don't take the time to ask those interesting questions and get those interesting experiences, you won't know. That's the issue. So my encouragement is to take that leap of faith, because if you try something, it doesn't matter what it is. If you try it, there's only two possible outcomes. 
outcome number one is you go, wow, it really is as awesome as I thought it was going to be. Great. Continue digging down that path. Option two is, wow, I really had high hopes for this, but it really sucks. I don't ever want to do this again. In which case, congratulations, you've just saved yourself years of heartache doing something that's never going to pan out for you, and you can now go in another direction. It's a win-win scenario. So my advice is try it, whether you're, you're 15, you're 18, you're 22, just try it. Ask people who've been there, who do what it is you think you might want to do. Let Google be your friend. Go down that rabbit hole. Do some investigation. Put the time in because you're investing that time in yourself. There is no more important time than time that you put into making yourself a more learned human being. Do that and you're going to find that you arrive at better conclusions. The second part of that, Eric, is the perception versus the reality in this country is, again, two very different paths. The perception is students who are getting ready to graduate from high school all know what they want to do for the rest of their lives. What a load of garbage. That is not true. It's never been true. It's never been more true than now. So for students who are all looking around and they're thinking that all of their friends and all of their neighbors all have figured it out, they haven't. Relax. You're going to be okay. But just because they haven't figured it out and you haven't figured it out doesn't mean you're off the hook from taking that first step and investigating and asking those interesting questions. And if you do that, you're going to find eventually you will arrive at the right answer. Yeah, Rob, this is, I mean, you're talking about like gold ticket questions, but this is like always where I walk away with, you know, the gold, um, you know, from the wisdom and the guidance. And, you know, I, I'm blessed to be able to share these conversations or this conversation with the audience, but I'm blessed that you and I get to have these conversations all the time. So, Rob, appreciate you and thank you. Oh, my, uh, my pleasure, my honor, always good to visit with you. And uh, I look forward to being able to come up to San Jose and uh, chat with you in person once uh, coronavirus blows over. Hopefully soon. Amen.